Heavenly Father, we beseech thee. I kneel before you as a member of this age-old craft, praying to you for guidance as I am on a journey. A journey for more light, but more especially light that has been lost, forgotten, or hidden among the ages gone by. The light that connects us with our very meaning and informs us of our purpose. Light locked deep within our past, beyond lips that no longer speak, and paths forgotten, no longer traveled. Aid me in my pursuit, Lord, for historical light. Hey everybody, welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. As always, I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers, and I want to thank you for joining us once again as we continue our quest for Historical Light in episode number four as we discuss Thailand Freemasonry. Our episode today is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Masonic Revival. You can check them out at their website, MasonicRevival.com, where you find some top quality Masonic merchandise such as bow ties, neckties, lapel pins, and much more. And uh, if you're looking to spruce up for your next lodge meeting or Masonic event, definitely go there and get as many items as you want. You don't have to worry about the shipping because Masonic Revival has given us an awesome promo code to handle just that. So if at your checkout you put in the promo code HLight, all one word, HLight, you will get free shipping on your order. So thank you, Masonic Revival, and go get some awesome quality products. Now let's start off the show as we always do with our friends over at MasonryToday.com. Let's go see what happened in Masonic history today. Today in Masonic history, Joseph Hughes was born in 1730. Joseph Hughes was an American politician and signer of the Declaration of Independence. Hughes was born in Princeton, New Jersey on January 23, 1730. He was raised a Quaker, and despite during the American Revolution straying from the general tenets of Quakerism, he remained a Quaker throughout his life. He attended Princeton University, although there is no record of him graduating from there. Sometime after leaving Princeton, Hughes became a merchant's apprentice. By 1773, his apprenticeship was over and he had relocated to North Carolina. He set up shop and was well-liked there. Because of his reputation in North Carolina, he was elected to the Continental Congress in 1774. Hughes initially was not in favor of independence. It was not until a session of Congress where letters and testimonials were being read stating that a vast majority of the members of the North Carolina colony wanted independence from England that he actually changed his vote. One of the committees that Hughes served on during his time in Congress was the Committee of Correspondence. This was a committee used to communicate with the identically named committees of the 13 colonies. The committee's job was to coordinate plans among the colonies and disseminate information. Traditionally, Quakers are pacifists by their choice and do not sit on committees that directly deal with war. Hughes was an exception to this and was the Secretary of Naval Affairs Committee. He put this directly, or this put him directly in charge of the warships for the Revolutionary War. When Hughes discovered that there were no ships available for the war's effort, he provided his own fleet of ships, outfitted them for combat, and chose the captains for the vessels. John Paul Jones was one such captain. John Adams often said that Hughes laid the foundation, the cornerstone of the American Navy. 
1776, after signing the Declaration of Independence, Hughes returned home in New Jersey due to his failing health. Despite his failing health, in 1778 Hughes sought re-election to Congress and failed in his campaign. In early 1779 he had his last days as congressman. On November 10, 1779 he passed away. The following day every member of the Continental Congress attended his funeral. Hughes was a member of Union Empty Lodge No. 7 in Edenton, North Carolina. So we definitely want to take a moment today to recognize the historical efforts of Brother Joseph Hughes. It was those very efforts, along with many others, that paved the way to the world that we live in today. So thank you so much, Brother. Now, today's episode, we're going to be speaking about Freemasonry within Thailand. We have a wonderful interview set up with uh, Worshipful Brother Jim Smith. It's going to give us a good insight into just that. So without further ado, we'll jump over, and I really hope you enjoy today's interview. All right, everybody, welcome back. Tonight we're here with uh, Worshipful Brother Jim Smith, and we're going to be covering the topic of Freemasonry in Thailand and Southeast Asia. Uh, Brother Smith, if you don't mind, I'll hand it over to you if you can uh, further introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Thank you, Brother Powers. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show tonight. I appreciate the, the time and the opportunity to uh, extol the, be the beauty of the virtues of Freemasonry in Thailand. And um, I myself was uh, made in a Freemason in Illinois. My father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were Masons as well. So that's uh, been of a long tradition, uh, nearly as long as yourself, I believe. But uh, I was made a Mason in Illinois, and shortly after becoming a Mason, I was dispatched to uh, Southeast Asia for work. And there I was a new Mason and didn't really understand how to behave in lodges or, or what to do. And I was... Um, instantly visiting lodges in, in Hong Kong, in uh, uh, Singapore, and, and elsewhere, learning about uh, the many different facets of Masonry Universal. Uh, it's all the same, except it's completely different everywhere you go. But I ended up in Thailand, and uh, there I discovered a, a thriving, growing Masonic scene. Even, even though it's very small, it was very enthusiastic, and that was really exciting to see. So that's how I ended up in Thailand. Very cool. So uh, becoming a member in the United States and then moving over Thailand, what kind of differences did you notice um, from the craft within the States to the craft over there just right off the bat? Everything is the same except it's completely different like I mentioned before. The, uh, <clears throat> obviously the, the rituals are, are they're beautiful but they're, they're different and I, I, I came to appreciate the American ritual with its, its vivid imagery and, and uh, you know, ham-fisted acting in the third degree, and just the, the, the way that it flows from degree to degree. I, I came to appreciate that, but I learned to enjoy the Scottish ritual. It was very dramatic, especially the third. The Irish ritual, which has a stunning first degree, and the the middle chamber lecture of the, the English second was just, it's a fantastic thing. If you can ever do that, you should do an Irish first, an English second, and a Scottish third, and that, that's the way to see these things. It's just it's become brilliant. I even got to see a, a French third degree, which was unique because it was in French. But the, <laughs> brother, the brethren were very helpful. They said, okay, will the visiting brethren please stand? Will the visiting brethren please give a sign? Will the visiting brethren please sit down? It was, uh, they, they were very helpful. The, 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 uh, the hospitality was remarkable. We can talk a bit more about that later. 
Very nice. Well, what would you say it is that enticed you to actually become a Freemason and join into the craft? Was it the family history alone, or what was it that really hooked into you? No, actually, uh, the family history I thought was a detriment because when I uh, was a young man, I, I saw some some TV programs which uh, showed a very devilish and demonic side of Freemasonry, mm -hmm. and it turned me off. I was for for twelve years. I was an ardent anti-Freemason. I knew that my my father, my my uncle, they were nice men, but they were being deceived by this uh, worldwide cabal of uh, Illuminati. And it was only after reading um, John J. Robinson and a few other books, maybe better researched, that I, I grew to realize that there were some logical questions in that line of the demonic cabal, which didn't make any sense. And you start breaking it open and spinning it around and and understanding the way that those stories are written, they're just, they're worthless, they're, they're nonsense. And so then I became interested in becoming a Mason, and that's when I, I knocked on the door. Definitely. I, I can totally understand and uh, uh, kind of match up with you on your feelings there. When when I was first getting interested in Freemasonry, you know, I've, I've explained to the viewers before that I had a lot of family history, and my father-in-law has been a Freemason for a long time and always really preached that to me, but... Yeah, every time you look it up, all you find is that very negative connotation that is with it today. And I was honestly turned off and quite frightened to join for some time. And even until I got all the way through my third degree, I was still kind of like, okay, <laughs> anything going to crazy, you know, start happening here. Yeah. But it's uh, once you once you get in and get through it, it's, it's almost amusing how far the misunderstanding goes. Oh, but that's because the lower degrees don't know. That that's very true. That's very true. <laughs> what, what, one aspect that, that that actually turned me off about masonry was my perception that it was a <clears throat> a whites only club. Mm. That you know the black folks were supposed to go to the the Prince Hall, and it was, masonry was a whites only thing. And I was very disturbed by that. But I, I my curiosity drove me further. And the year I was um, raised in in Illinois was the year that we formally recognized Illinois Prince Hall Masonry. And I just, my first magazine of Illinois Freemason had both grandmasters on the cover. And I was, my mind just blew a gasket. It was fantastic. And what I've seen since is that <clears throat> masonry is universal. It, it allows men of very different cultures, races, creeds, religions to, to come together in a social environment that really isn't that common. We hang out with a lot of the people that are just like us. And it's only when we get the opportunity to explore through these bonds that we really make change. Indeed, indeed. Well, brother, if you don't mind, we'll go ahead and jump into the topic tonight. Um, you're going to be explaining some of the history behind Freemasonry in Thailand and kind of how it got started. So if you don't mind, I'll hand it over to you if you want to run us through that. Absolutely. On the uh, the ThaiFreemason.com website, there's a beautiful, um, well, there's a not-so-beautiful brief history of Freemasonry in Thailand written by, written by me, and that was just cobbled together from various parts. But there's a beautiful history called the History of Lodge St. John. Freemasonry in Thailand for 90 years was only Lodge St. John. And that was the only lodge in town, it was the only game in town, and everyone who was a Mason belonged or affiliated or went through the degrees there. And that's because uh, Freemasonry in Thailand had a tough start. The, the first efforts were late 1870s, and it was started primarily by the commercial uh, merchants, 
uh, the, the merchant the, the merchant marines and the other sailors that would come into the ports in, uh, in Thailand trying to have a, a camaraderie and the friendship that they enjoyed back in their home ports of Singapore or Malaysia and they wanted to start a, a lodge there but there weren't a lot of local merchants or, or expats that were comfortable doing that or even had the energy to do it. The local Thai population, of course, have no concept of democracy, of Judeo-Christian thought, or the, the, the Bible, which serves as the basis for Freemasons. So they didn't catch on initially with the local population there. It took three tries to try and form an English lodge um, in Thailand, and all of them were unsuccessful. It, it's the, the history is beautiful in the way that it lays out. It's, it's almost like a soap opera. You couldn't write, you couldn't create a story that was more dramatic than the efforts to, to build these English lodges that, that just all failed in the end. Mm. Masters would die, the, the people would get reassigned, people got sick. It's it just disaster after disaster. So after three times they said enough of that, they tried the Irish. Because the Irish are game for anything. Let's go. <laughs> and uh, they got a warrant. They got a charter. By the time the, the charter arrived, the master had died. Mm. So they said, okay, well, this isn't going to work. So they died down for a while. The average just died down. Then eventually, in 1908, I believe, they tried the Scots because Scots are your last sort of hope for redemption. So they went to the Scots, and they, they, had, they got the requisite number of members to, to sign the, the request. They had the charter issued. The, uh, by the time the charter got here, the, the grandmaster, the, the master uh, de designate, had been shipped out on another assignment. So they quickly requested another charter, changing the name of the master. And by the time it arrived, they were able to form the first lodge in 1911. So that was the the foundation of Freemasonry in Thailand for many many years. Um, after the the lodge was founded, it was very popular amongst. People of a certain class, you members of the British Club, members of the high society, could eventually join the lodge if they were so inclined and had the right connections. It sure. was really a, an upper class bastion. Um, there weren't, there wasn't so much meeting on the level, if you know what I mean. After a while, after a couple of decades, the the Thai, some Thai nobility, distant nobles distant, uh, you know, high, high society ties, started joining the lodge. And I think by the time 1930 came around, a quarter of the members were Thai, which was significant for wow. the time. Um, these were ties that had been educated overseas in Europe or America and had come back with an understanding of the basic principles on which Freemasonry were found. They, they, they could appreciate those principles a bit more than folks who have never left. <clears throat> but uh, just when things were rolling along nicely, the Japanese invaded. So during World War II, uh, Thailand was officially neutral, which means they just kind of threw up their hands and put the guns down and let the Japanese, you know, this way. Right. Uh, one of the first places the Kempei Thai uh, went through was the rented premises where Lodge St. John met. They went through all the records. They went through all the regalia. They, they took it all back for examination. And then they started rounding up the members. They rounded up the, the Masons who were from the Allied powers. Fortunately, many of the members of uh, Lodge St. John were either neutral Swiss or even from Axis countries. So they were ignored. And uh, the, uh, the Allied members, unfortunately, were not so lucky. 
they were brought into internment camps and under very harsh conditions. Many grew sick, many died, and um, needless to say, Lodge went dark for a few years. But thanks to the brotherhood formed, even among those men of very different cultures, they were able to band together and to help out their brothers who were behind bars. They, they access brethren, they would bring food, they would pay off guards, they would do whatever it took to help the lives of those men behind bars. And that's how some of them probably, the only way some of them probably survived. After the war, things were kind of dour. The, there wasn't really a mood to renew Freemasonry so much. The Lodge started up again, but many of the brethren had died. Um, others were just tired of living abroad and, and went home to sunny England. And still others um, just didn't think it was prudent to be a Mason. But things began coming up again, boiling up. In the 70s, things really started kicking off because of the Vietnam War. Thailand was a, an Air Force base, a, a staging ground for American troops going to the war. It was a place for R&R. <clears throat> a lot of troops were stationed in Bangkok. And um, that's when uh, the history reports that a tremendous new wave hit Thai Freemasonry, which was the Americans. Mm. And the, the Americans came in, GIs, soldiers, and officers, enlisted men who had been Masons, who were who, who were Masons in their their units, and they tried to go into these uh, the lodge in Lodge Saint John, and they were curtly rebuffed because they weren't the right kind of people to be visiting uh. Lodge Saint John. So. Um, they uh, Americans are hardy people, though, as you and I know. Uh, they were um, they off, went off in their own bases and they, they formed square and compass clubs, and um, they met on their own and they had a good time and they they uh, they lived their life. But and after the war died down, the many of the, the soldiers went home. Air bases were closed at the request of the Thai government, and many of the but some of the masons, uh, some of the uh, the airmen and soldiers decided to remain in Thailand. It's a beautiful place. It's a great place to retire. If you're going to retire, do it someplace tropical where they put umbrellas and drinks, right? Definitely. <laughs> so that's that's a great place to retire. Many of them did, and they started businesses. They they married Thai ladies. They and, and began families, and they were Masons. So they started coming to Lodge St. John, and eventually they, they worked their way in. Uh, but when they did, it was an amazing thing because it brought – of fresh blood into Lodge St. John that they hadn't, you know, it was no longer the stuffy aristocracy. Those people were gone. It was more of rejuvenated, uh, energetic um, stock of men that were, you know, reading the ritual and learning the Scottish ways of doing things. And then, of course, when you've got enough Americans in a place, you start a shrine. So the Shriners came to Bangkok and the local, the, I say locals, I mean the, the British and the Scottish, they were just appalled that these crazy people were running around with fezes on and drinking heavily. But they were astounded at the charity. They ran a charity for children in orphanages, and they brought them toys on Christmas. They drove a bus down country to, to visit, and it was just remarkable that that level of charity – hadn't been seen amongst the Masons. I mean, Masons, we talk about charity and, 
and in many places that means you you, you pass around the hat during the meeting and take up a charity um, offering and then it goes somewhere and does something but but this was a real tangible charity that the Masons were doing through the Shriners. Right. And so many of the Brits, a lot of the Scots, and Irish, they're Irish, they're fun. They they're they're going to they went and joined the Shrine, and it, it ran heavily until the 90s, like early 90s. Then it finally wound down. There just weren't enough members to support it. Um, it was in the early 90s though that things started changing. We started seeing lodges pop up in Pattaya or Pattaya, as they call it here, and um, that was the Scottish Lodge over in Pattaya. Then we had the Irish in Morakot Lodge in Bangkok. Then we had, um, what was it? Then the French came with the National Grand Lodge of France. Um, then somewhere in that time, there was a Prince Hall Grand Lodge, Prince Hall Lodge from Delaware that uh, started up, I think, on or near the uh, the Army base. It, we didn't recognize Delaware when I was there, so I would never got the chance to visit. It's only been recently that Delaware has been recognized as Prince Hall, so uh, that would be great fun to visit. But all these lodges started popping up from all these different constitutions. And right now, I helped uh, start a Dutch lodge while I was there. We we have lodges from six different Grand Lodges, seven if you count the Grand Lodge traditional modern of France, GLTMF. Wow. The traditional, the traditional Grand Lodge of France. There is this whole kerfuffle about the the Grand Lodge, National Grand Lodge of France. You may recall if you follow Chris Hodup's blog, uh-huh. he he went over that extensively. Grand uh, National Grand Lodge of France blew its mind. They had a an issue and they ceased being recognized by all of the Grand Lodges around the world. They fell out of the mainstream, <clears throat> and so uh, many of these Masons that were French Masons were devastated because they could no longer be, you know, Masons. You got to understand in Thailand, because the Masonic community is very small, men join multiple lodges. I sure. know some guys who join every lodge. It's a very expensive thing, but but people do. But because you're joining across the multiple grand lodges, you're very susceptible to any kind of fluctuations in the politics. Mm. And so when the National Grand Lodge of France was no longer recognized, these men were, there were, you know, Scotsmen who were joining that one and the French who were joining the Scots Lodge. They had to figure out which way they wanted to go, which way they wanted to fall. And many of them withdrew membership from the British lodges, as I call them, and stayed true to the GLNF. But the GLNF was undergoing further change. And so some of those men broke away and joined another effort, uh, the GLTMF, which is now in France. And it's, I think it's the amalgamation of Grand Lodge of France and uh, some of the other regular bodies that were there that became a new Grand Lodge, which is not recognized by anyone. So now they are, um, I guess, clandestine Masons, but they're wonderful, wonderful people. I, I include them and in their activities on my site. Um, and uh, earlier this year, that's when we started including them. And that's simply because I went through an interrogation process with the, the Grand Master of the GLTMF, who was patient enough to listen to my question. I gave him 10 things that all lodges have to do to be regular. I said, do your lodges do this? And he came back item by item, explaining how they adhered to the 10 uh, ancient pr- principles of regularity. So Wonderful. good. I included Wonderful. them. But, but masonry in Thailand is, is an amazing thing right now. It's six or seven Grand Lodges, depending on how you count. 
uh, maybe a dozen lodges, all uh, from Pattaya, Bangkok, Phuket, and even down to the Malaysian border in Hatyai. So it's, it's a fantastic tapestry. And the best thing about it, or the most exciting thing about it, in addition to being able to see all these different workings and, and degrees and styles, there's a lot of travel between Malaysia, Singapore, and other you know, neighbors, the Philippines, so that you have all this great camaraderie of people. When I was in, in Bangkok, we opened the, the first Masonic temple in Bangkok in 2004, the Lodge St. John Masonic Temple. And when we did the opening, I wish I had the picture I could show you. There were, well, there's one great team photo of all the, the, the brethren and the visiting brethren, and there were maybe 100 men from a dozen different countries, you know, 50 different races, different religions, all this. You know, we had guys in, in turbans. We had guys in, in uh, all fantastic aprons and, and regalia. It was just a, a wonderful thing to see. And that picture to me is it's, it's Masonry Universal. We're completely the same but different. Definitely, and, and that's that's the way I think that Thailand is is the great, uh, you know, synthesis of masonry universal. Very cool. So then there is not actually a Grand Lodge of Thailand, but no. multiple different Grand Lodges that kind of make up the area. Yeah, Thailand is open territory, and that I think is because there still isn't a great number of locals. Back in the '30s, I, I mentioned it was about 25% locals or local right. Thai. It's much less than that now. Really? It is practically entirely expats. And if you go to Malaysia, it's completely opposite. It's, it's majority local Malay and uh, a few expats thrown in for seasoning. If you go to Singapore, it's the same thing. But you go to Hong Kong, it's the same thing. But it's in, um, in Thailand because I think of a lot of different fundamental principles that um, you don't get this. You know, Thailand was never a colony. It was... The, you know, Rama the Fourth was uh, an excellent king, and he was able to play all these people off of each other and and balance that delicate balance to to maintain his his freedom, his his um, his I guess his, his territory. And as a result, though, there was never a great push to learn English, French, German, whatever, uh, unlike Hong Kong or Malaysia. So there's nothing, no basis for this. The, the Freemasonry in Thailand is a very strange thing. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know who Solomon was or, or what uh, uh, you know David was. It's it's very strange for them. And it's right. almost like fairy tales. So we do appreciate the the, the the ties that we have because they are men of learning, and almost to a one, they are fantastic ritualists. They they can express and convey the ideas. Uh, it's it's a fantastic thing. In, in 2005, there was a lodge started, Lodge Ratanakosan, under the Scottish Grand Lodge, intended to be a Thai language lodge. They had permission from Grand Lodge of Scotland to use a Thai language ritual to conduct their business in Thai, but that's been a, a real stop and start thing. It, it's, it's, I don't think that they've gotten very far with the ritual. I believe that their day-to-day -day business, paying light bills and things, will be in Thai. Sure. But, uh, the ritual translation is difficult. That is definitely cool. I, I could only imagine going over there and visiting several different lodges and seeing ritual to ritual to ritual and trying to keep up with that. But that, that is very cool to have all that cultural divide come together. 
Another interesting thing about Freemasonry in Thailand is that it's more in line with the, the British, you know, English, Irish, Scotch. I use that term um, incorrectly, I know, but I, it's, it's handy to have one term to call it. But it's, it's more in line with that style of masonry where you have alcohol before the, uh, the, the event. You have a bar downstairs and you go down and have a cocktail or two before lodge. You go upstairs, you do your serious work, and then you come downstairs and you have a harmony or a festive board and there's wine served, there's you know maybe a few drinks afterwards. It's a very festive occasion, and mm. uh, it's it's something that uh, I miss being in America. But uh, it's you know American masonry is is fantastic in different many different ways. Definitely. Well, you had mentioned that the uh, the shrine had popped up with a pretty healthy population. Are they still doing decent, or had they just totally tapered down, as you the, mentioned? The shrine. Uh, closed. They went dark in, uh, I think it was 92. Okay, so they are completely yeah, dark at this point. Done. Yeah. Is there any other signs of any other appendant bodies or affiliate bodies? Very healthy. Very healthy appendant bodies. Um, shortly after Lodge St. John formed, they uh, formed a Royal Arch chapter okay. and a Lodging Council chapter, which I, I'm not really too good with the York Rite thing, I, um, but I think it's the first two bodies in the York Rite. I don't think okay. they have, they don't have a Knights Templar because Scotland doesn't do that. <clears throat> and uh, there is a uh, Scottish Rite. I went through the Scottish Rite, and that, that's an interesting thing right there. We uh, we are. I was made a Scottish Rite as a member of the Valley of Taipei. So uh, that it's southern jurisdiction, and uh, they do the same ritual that we do in Dallas and elsewhere around the, the southern jurisdiction. It's fantastic, um, and it's a good time. They, once a year, the the members will go either to Thailand or Malaysia, and they will put on six degrees over a weekend. And it's fun because each of the different uh, countries or grand lodges within this country, that, that area have their own the ritual to do. And mm. uh, Lodge St. John's was the 32nd degree, so that was fantastic. That was a lot of fun. But uh, back, we had the French do the, uh, the 30th degree, or not the 30th. Yeah, it was the 30th degree, and that was very dramatic. Really, lots of stomping around and and French heavy French accents. And, uh, <laughs> that was that was a lot of fun. So. Awesome. What about um, children's affiliate bodies? I know here we have you know Job's daughters, Demole, Rainbow Girls. Do you see any of that over there? I know with a lot of the uh, military being stationed and other uh, work sources. Do you see any of that? There are none. There are at none all. at all. And there's not even uh, thoughts or, or contemplation of starting it because Freemasonry is considered to be a gentleman's club. Okay. And there are no uh, ladies affiliation. There's no uh, Eastern Star. There's no Amaranth. There's nothing for the ladies either. And um, the most fun I've ever had is a ladies' night for Chula Lodge. Uh, they, they have the ladies come in and... Uh, uh, they are, the ladies are entertained while the, the men do the heavy business of the lodge, you know, the ritual of the, the degree night. And then after the degree, after the, the, the meeting, they have a festive board with the ladies. And so you're able to bring your wife in your arm and, and show her around this beautiful ballroom and have an elegant dinner. Um, but it's most of the ladies hate it. <laughs> most of the ladies absolutely just hate it because they're sitting around with people they don't really like for th two or three hours, and then they get to have the privilege of coming into dinner with you. Um, you know, that's <laughs> my wife just absolutely hated that. Good definitely, times. definitely. 
Well, um, how long have you um, been in Thailand again? I think you may have said that. I was I was in Thailand for about uh, five or six years, and okay. then I moved back to the states in the um, late two thousands. So, Wonderful. but I've been keeping up to date with uh, up to speed with my contacts there and and uh, helping them out through the website. Uh, website's awesome because it brings in. Uh, new members, uh, affiliate members, even visitors who just want to go for a, you know, a, to see a French third degree. It's it's always a good time, and um, it's a fantastic environment. I I would encourage you, I would encourage your viewers to to really, if you get the chance, look at the website, pick out a week when there's like two or three lodges meeting, then just go. End of June looks like a really good week because there are three lodges meeting that week, um, but uh, you know. Just pick it out and go. But it's a really good time. It's a fantastic experience. You won't get the chance to see that variety of masonry hardly anywhere else. Definitely. Well, that that is, uh, of course, something I do want to see. And unfortunately, my bank account won't support all the travel I want to do. But that is on the list, and I plan to do hey, that uh, one day. Just ask the Illuminati Loan Association. I think that can hook you up. I, I, yes, I need to get an application in for that. For sure. <laughs> Well, brother, thank you so much for joining us tonight and bringing such a wealth of knowledge on this subject. Um, I want to give you a chance. Would you like to plug any websites or uh, contacts where people may be able to find out a little more information about this? As a matter of fact, I do. We can always be found at uh, www.thaifreemason.com. We're also on Facebook, and you can just drop me a line, jim at thaifreemason.com. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us tonight, brother. We definitely appreciate it, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks very much, Alex. Take care. Take care. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that interview just as much as I enjoyed doing the interview. I want to thank Brother Smith once more for coming on the show with us today. Uh, he was a fantastic guy to interview. I had a wonderful time uh, having a conversation with him, and the amount of uh, knowledge he brought to the table is pretty extraordinary. It's always great to hear about how masonry is done, not just outside of your district, but around the world. So I definitely encourage you brothers to continue to seek that path of light. And let's keep up the conversation. If you guys aren't a member of the Historical Light Masonic Research Group on Facebook yet, go there today, click the join button, and we'll get you on there. Uh, it's a great way to share not only your lodge's history, your family history, but also engage in other people's history and research that they are putting on there. We have some great conversations going on all the time, and we're going to continue this conversation there as well. Now, before we do go today, a couple things I want to bring up. I want to apologize. The website has been down for a few days. We're actually trying to get that upgraded in a few ways so we can bring you guys some great new features and have that website growing um, with more potential to come every day. So that will be up soon. We have a team working on it, getting it redesigned and amped up for what we need it to be. And we'll, ho we'll have that up just as soon as possible. And before ending the show today, I do have a special Masonic shout-out on the show for Brother Alexander Yassin over in Ireland. He's a fan of the show, and he actually sent me a Masonic gift in the mail recently. I was really shocked but humbled to receive it. Uh, he sent me this jewel. I don't think you can see it. His lower third's probably covering it, but I am wearing it. And I will edit in a picture here so everybody can get a really good look at it. Uh, he says in his card that, I pray this reaches you in good health. I understand you have ancestry in Ireland, and that makes you Irish. I thought you should have this jewel. It's the 150th anniversary jewel of the Provincial Grand Lodge of Antrim. Antrim is the country of North Ireland that has Belfast within it. 
It's under the Grand Lodge of Ireland in Dublin, the second oldest branch of Freemasonry. Good luck with historical light. You're doing excellent work. And he actually uh, taped the jewel into the card with uh, medical tape because he's a medical doctor. I, I thought that was a pretty cool touch there. But brother, I, I definitely want to deeply thank you. I, like I said, I was humbled to receive this gift. I uh, wore it in Lodge the other night. Everybody absolutely loved it. I'm wearing it on the show today, and I'm going to retire it onto a display for safekeeping, make sure I take good care of it, until one day, of course, I do hope my Masonic travels bring me that way, in which I will bring it with me and wear it with deep pride. So thank you so much, brother. It was unexpected, but like I said, deeply humbled to receive it, and I will take good care of it. Um, with that, brothers, I hope to see you all over on our Masonic Research Group to continue the discussion for today's show. That is Historical Light Masonic Research Group on Facebook. So if you're not a member there, make sure you join. We'll get you on there for the great conversation happening on a daily basis. With that, we'll see you next time as we continue our quest for Historical Light. Have a wonderful day.